If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919600. Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hello, I'm Faye. Hi, I'm James. So today we're talking to Ilias Khan from Quantinium. It's not rocket science, but it is quantum computing. So I'm hoping to get a really good understanding about what's happening in the industry. It's super hot right now. And I'm definitely interested to find out about Ilias's journey. In under 10 years, he's made waves in an extremely complex market and has become a great success story, not just for Cambridge, but for the quantum market globally. So let's find out some more. Hi, Ilias. It's great to have you with us today. Hello, Faye. Hi. Good to be here. Thank you. So we're going to get on to the technology, onto quantum computing and company growth in a minute. But actually, I'd like to start with the discussion around a book, if I may. Last month, Quantinium published a book, Quantum in Pictures. And I'm led to believe or reliably informed that you think it's really important that you communicate, you know, it's one of your responsibilities to communicate about the quantum sector to the broader audience. Um, So I'm interested, because I'm just a generally nosy person, as to how that idea came about and how much involvement did you have in the book? It's really um, close to my heart, this question of making things accessible. The roots of all of this go back quite a while to about 2009. And it was a confluence of two things that happened. One, I used to be the chairman of the Stephen Hawking Foundation. And Stephen had this incredible ability to communicate the most complex ideas. Well, of course, he also had a mind the size of the planet, um, but he could communicate ideas and it was important for him that all of us would participate in the most important things. And, you know, nowadays we might call that democratization or making things more accessible. Whatever the terminology, the fact of the matter is he was right. We should not be on the outside looking in. He pointed me to a quote by Carl Sagan, which is that, you know, we live in a complex society. Things are very complicated. The challenge for us is to make sure we carry everybody with us. And it is possible to do so. These things might be complex, but they're not beyond your and my understanding. Not if we try hard. And we try so hard in our society to do things like make money and have fun. And so if we just did a modicum of effort in making things more accessible, we could go a long way. The second bit of this wonderful, amazing, magical innovation, which is called ZX Calculus, and it sounds a little bit intimidating, but it's a way of being just as rigorous in maths 
by using diagrams as it is using obscure notation. And that idea has been around a very long time. Life has changed. There's a before and there's an after. And the Industrial Revolution is the advent of quantum technologies. And it's not as if they're 20, 30, 50 years away. They are relatively soon. They're changing all of our lives. And I think it's important that all of us, you know, wherever we are, whether we're in, I don't know, Calcutta or in Accrington or even Cambridge, we should all have access to, 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 to understanding what's going on around us. So that's really the background to why this book is just one of the many things that I do and hopefully will continue to do to make things accessible. That's big, grandiose words, isn't it? So is it because things are coming together, the technology is coming together, the market's coming together? You know, what is the big change that we're expecting and what is quantum's role? We are capable today of looking at the sweep of human history. And for the first time in human history, nation state after nation state has adopted a national strategic policy on a single technology, which is quantum. Germany has allocated vast amounts of money, America, China, the Netherlands, Spain, France, the United Kingdom, you name it, Japan, Country after country has a national legislative and scientific program to commercialize and industrialize a leadership position. People like China have said that they do not want a repeat of the 19th century when they were left behind. This is an industrial revolution, the likes of which we have never seen. Would you be able to bring that to life in terms of the potential applications of quantum, the opportunities that quantum creates? Yes, of course. There are three or four areas in which the boundary of what can and cannot be done by existing computing will have shifted. One of the most commonly recognized uses of a quantum computer will be in material discovery. The materials that we have created, the computer that we're using today has been manufactured largely using materials that already exist, and then we've adapted them. However, there are materials that we could create. So, for example, there could be a pharmaceutical application to solve problems that we've not been able to solve for as long as we've been human beings, you know, oncologies of different types, Alzheimer's, diabetes, things for which we currently don't have solutions. We can treat some of the symptoms, but we don't have fundamental solutions. And it is highly likely now, and pretty much every pharmaceutical company around has accepted, that a quantum computer, when it is fully fault-tolerant, And whether you think that's around the corner or whether you think that's 10 years away, there's no question that it will now happen. That computer will be able to create, let's call them tailor-made pharmaceuticals that are not just good at curing human beings of these diseases, but good for individual humans like you and I. This is profound and revolutionary. This has never existed We as a society spend billions on things that might be curatives. And we typically scratch the surface because this is a hard problem. 
And when quantum computers were first envisaged, it was for this reason in the 1980s that people thought that a quantum computer would be useful. One of the preoccupations of nation states is cybersecurity. And the fact of the matter is that all of our current cybersecurity is based on what might be deterministic. So you might call it as a deterministic or an algorithmic solution to provide the lock and the key by which we um, safeguard our data and our communications. These are always vulnerable to increasing compute power. So a quantum computer in the future will be able to unlock the, the lock or replicate the key because it's not defeated by these deterministic methods. Remember, we're just jumbling things up. We're trying to create random ways of protecting our data. That's what a, a, a lock and a key system does. In the future, using a quantum computer we could defend ourselves against all of these threats, including threats from quantum computing. And I'll leave you with one final thought in terms of application and the one that's capturing everybody's mind at the moment. We seem to be enthralled by what can and can't be done using natural language processing. And so recently, chat GPT-3 has um, emerged. Well, the fact of the matter is, it is a brute force use of high energy, lots and lots of energy to do stuff that's trivial. And actually, the computer doesn't understand what we're doing or saying. Chat GPT-3 in the future will look like maybe the equivalent of an abacus compared to a, a calculator would have been. It is these kinds of things that we anticipate and now believe that quantum computing will do over a relatively short period of time. You tend to see these kind of hype cycles around new technologies. You know, crypto has been going through a, a rough time with the recent FTX situation, generative AI. Uh, another one is the metaverse. You know, all of these things get hyped by the media. How do you see the media handling the narrative of quantum to really tell the story and get people engaged with what this opportunity looks like? Well, humanity, ever since, I don't know, the tulip mania, all the way through to cryptocurrencies, if somebody somewhere thinks they can turn a book by spouting something and convincing his or her neighbor to pay him for it, that's always going to be there. So I'm not, I don't think that's necessarily an issue that bothers me right now. But I think that what will happen, if you ask me to look in the crystal ball, is at some point, a quantum computer will do something that hasn't been done by a classical computer. And in my opinion, that's going to be a cybersecurity thing. And that will then catch the, the mainstream, and that will then start coverage by journalists who are generalists and not specialists. And of course, that's the point that, you know, when we started this conversation about accessibility, I'm hoping that a greater proportion of our population is capable of understanding what we're talking about than is currently the case. So Ilias, talking about accessibility, I want to go back a little, I'm kind of sitting here going, do I actually want to ask this question? So I'm just going to ask it anyway. You know, you've given us those examples, cybersecurity, completely logical, seeing that happen, natural language processing, machine learning, AI, yeah, understand all of that, understand the phenomenal impact it could have on us. What I'm still not getting is the how, how is it actually different to what we've got today? In our existing computers, we convert instructions from a on or an off 
and we call that a binary system. We can represent off in a zero and on in a one, do multiplication and addition using a system of logic, which is yes or no, and that's how we do it. Now, it turns out that we can embed information, a yes or a no, a zero or a one, not just in a transistor and read whether it's on or off, but in a physical thing. And that physical thing is a atomic or subatomic particle. It can be an electron or a photon. A photon is a single unit of light. An electron exists within an atom. These are indescribably small, but they're real things. And what happens when you go to that level of the universe is that the laws of nature become fundamental. They're unchanging. And using those laws, we find that the logic is different. We no longer have only a yes or a no. Now, that's a long-winded way of saying that a quantum computer is a computer where the individual unit of information is embedded and represented by something physical. And because that something physical is infinitesimally small, it is ruled by the laws of quantum mechanics. Those laws are different. And because they're different, we've discovered that computers are different. And luckily for us, they're better. I need to go and get the book. That one. I'm, I'm, the, per- I'm the perfect candidate, I think. Thank you, though, for the, for the explanation. It was very clear. I guess a question for me, like any new technology, you need to start to build an ecosystem around it to encourage the adoption. What does, what does that look like in terms of, you know, what's your perspective on how do you go about building an ecosystem around quantum? One of the things that um, I, I'd mentioned earlier is that this is a global ecosystem. The genie's out of the bottle. Country after country has got a government-led program. And so in many respects, if you think of, of, of lighting a fire, somebody somewhere has got to get that spark. And so the spark for the ecosystem is global and has been led either by government funding or by large organizations investing very large amounts of money to build devices. And that ecosystem now is diverse. It's obviously not as rich and diverse numerically in terms of numbers of companies and organizations and people employed as what might be described as artificial intelligence and tech today. But the amount of money being devoted to it is astronomical. I mean, it is a very, very large amount of money. And it needs to be because these things are cheap. Now, particularly in the United States and the United Kingdom and Japan and Germany, which are the four countries that I know about the best, there is an ecosystem that ranges from the supply chain. So when you're building something, you need a supply of things. You know, in 1988 or 89, when the first car phone arrived, regardless of how big it was, somebody somewhere had designed the keyboard, the circuit boards, the network switches. They didn't just happen by magic for the first phone to be around. So we're at that point now, similarly, where the supply chain and people in the supply chain exist, where quantum computers now exist. There are many of them. There there are dozens of them all over the world. And people who are programming and creating the middleware, the compilers, the operating systems now exist. And there are also people doing the application side. There are very few 
fully integrated firms. There are a few. Ours is one. We are the world's largest quantum computing firm, came to life in Cambridge. We're just one of many firms in the ecosystem. You know, this is early doors and people like analogies. And I would say that if you've lived through the internet, maybe we're in 1994 or 95, the World Wide Web is available. CompuServe is just around the corner. For those of us old enough, we can remember the modem making its squeaking noises when we dialed up. You know, so kind of that's where it was. We certainly couldn't watch movies or send text messages and photographs. You know, that that's a reasonable analogy of where we are. I was going on the dot-com boom side of things as well there, thinking because there's so much investment, there's going to be a lot of hits and misses, surely. There's going to be a lot of companies that start doing one thing and then maybe go or actually maybe that's not the bit of quantum I want to be in I'm going to move around is that already starting to happen I think that the first globally applicable solution I let's call it a product I think is something that will happen this year that's my view I'm probably mid mainstream when it comes to trying to forecast when these things are happen so I'm in the 5 year category from now Five years might sound like a lot, but it it actually isn't. And so I think during these five years, you know, you talked about this confluence of money and and technology. Well, of course, yes, that will happen. And yes, I'm sure there'll be companies, you know, dozens that are listed, if not hundreds, and share prices up and down. And I'm sure there'll be a fair share of people that were snake oil salesmen along the way. To be honest with you, Faye, I'm just not, it's not on my register and I don't think it should be on anybody's register yet. I think there are far more fundamental things that matter than the fact that somebody may or may not make or lose money. Now the week's Cambridge Tech headlines brought to you by Business Weekly. SoftBank have ended all speculation about the location of ARM's multi-billion dollar IPO by unveiling four Wall Street banks to lead the US float this year. Barclays are among the international banking quartet hand-picked to lead the IPO. Also, there's Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan and Mizero are the other three said to have been chosen to lead the Nasdaq float. Redgate Software are planning to open a string of additional offices in the United States of America. After lighting the touch paper with a new office in the New York metro area, the company says that ambitious plans are already in place with facilities in Illinois and Florida. The DevOps company already has offices in Pasadena and Austin, Texas. In other news, Foresight Group, the private equity and infrastructure investor, have made a multi-million pound equity investment into Cambronics Limited, a Cambridge-based mobile device management company. And finally, Cambridge cybersecurity AI specialist Darktrace have posted a 35% revenue growth year-on-year and a 24% rise in its customer base for the six months to December 31st. The company reported strong first-half operating and a financial performance, despite challenging macroeconomic headwinds. Now back to the show. I believe it was founded in 2014 as Cambridge Quantum. Can you talk us through how the company formed and the journey to get to Quantinium? We came to life in a, a room 300 square foot at the Cambridge Union Society. I was very much influenced by the idea that quantum computing was going to be for real. It wasn't just a scientific um, process. And the UK National Quantum Technologies Programme had just come into force, the first one. Had we met in 2014, 
the aspiration you would have heard from us would be to create the middleware, eventually the operating system, and then the applications, because as we all know, quantum computers or any computer is not just about how wonderful it is and how fast it is, is what you can use that wonderfulness for and that fastness for. The applications are the ones that matter. So that would have been our aspiration. And I was going to say also that had we sat down for a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and you'd have asked me timelines, we would have said, you know, 10 years from now, we think that these things will be commercial. And here we are, not quite 10 years, but um, our cybersecurity product is this year going to be commercial. And I think that we, we certainly are the world's leading machine builder. Our machine is the most efficient and the fastest. The accelerated growth probably took place towards the end of 2018, when many, many other quantum computing initiatives started to take off, which is the point about the ecosystem. Many people have asked to buy us over the course of the years, and we have steadfastly refused to be bought. In fact, one of the great things I'm focused on is to show that Cambridge, well, Britain, but Cambridge can produce a deep science company that can be a world leader and that doesn't sell out. So our first investor was from GSR. Then we got an investment from IBM. And again, you know, this was an investment from an organization that didn't need to be educated about the technology. There's no guesswork involved. Honeywell then came along a little bit later. And then we merged with Honeywell's quantum hardware business at the end of 2021. And that then led to the change of name from Cambridge Quantum to Quantinuum. And we today have about um, just over 500 people and just over half of them are in the United States and the rest are either in Germany, in Japan or in the United Kingdom. And of course, Cambridge remains the center of our activities for the middleware, the compiler, and what will later this year be the world's first operating system. One of the things that Cambridge Quantum has done is to show that there's a path from being literally a startup with one or two people to being an organization of scale and size, not just in terms of the way that we raise money, because typically if you want to raise money, you really want investors whose interests and objectives are aligned with ours. And this is a long-term play. Nobody got rich in Cambridge Quantum overnight. But the other thing is, I think founder-led companies where the founder continues to have a significant shareholding and where you you go through all the cycles, and some of the best-known examples, of course, are Microsoft and Apple, and there are many, many others. But I think in deep science and in tech, here in the United Kingdom, we either have founders who get diluted down so that they're no longer significant, or because of the way our system works, they sell out and they get rich and buy nice houses in Mallorca or whatever. And I think that in the case of quantum computing, and at least in the case of Cambridge Quantum, one of the things that we can now, with the benefit of hindsight, look at and benefit from is the fact that our early investors were all industrial investors who were aligned, but also as a founder, You know, I've not sold a single share. I don't intend to sell a share for a while. And yes, I have been diluted over the years because other people have invested. My percentage has gone down. But I think it's really 
interesting when I look at this and I look at many, many, many other areas where people particularly bemoan, you know, why isn't Britain at the forefront of, 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 of leading in technology? And I think that there's a lesson in there somewhere. You have to have that alignment of interest and you can't just have founders who want to sell the shares for pennies more than they come in a year or two or three or four later. I'm in my eighth or ninth year. And that's, I think, what it takes to build these businesses. You need an alignment of interest with industrial partners. So that's something which I think we you know, have learned, obviously, from the United States, and we can start to apply here as well. Yeah, I guess it's that need for patient capital, uh, similar, I guess, into the, in the life sciences field, which you don't typically see in the software and computing field. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. In, in life sciences, though, what tends to happen, and again, this is here in the United Kingdom, it's very rare for a, a founder to come through in year eight, nine, and 10 with the significant interest that they still have. In early stage businesses, angel and VC investors, because we don't have that depth of infrastructure yet that the US has for deep science, we tend to extract such a large price you know, the, the, the pound of flesh that the investors want is so high that if you've got a group of founders, by the time you've got to round two, three, four, or, you know, after the Series A, they're just diluted down. Yes, investors need to be rewarded, but is it right that we have this particular model? And that, I think, is something which will change, and it is changing in the United Kingdom. I was one of the founders of Accelerate Cambridge, and you know that was out of the Judge Business School. I think things are changing, and I'm hoping that at least over the, the next cycle, the next generation, and I'm now talking the next 10 or 15 years, we get to the point where we have an ecosystem of investors in deep science technology where it's much more equitable and where just because you've got a few pennies in your pocket doesn't mean that you can extract these huge percentages of ownership. Yeah, and you would hope the Cambridge investment community would understand that more than perhaps any other city in the UK. I'm really curious. I mean, you know, obviously it's a it's a natural byproduct of the interest in the field and the growth and the and the, the the potential of the business that you're expanding internationally and in the UK. Are you hiring non-technical roles now? Or is there a sales kind of organization or is it too early for that? Our motto, James, is science-led enterprise driven. So we do things at scale. We don't do things for small counterparts. Our clients and our partners are people that are very, very large organizations who are science-led enterprise driven. So historically, we've been very science-heavy in our recruiting. You would have to look at the next eight or nine or 10 companies and add them together to get to where we are in scale. But you're very prescient in your question because we are now looking at a We do have a sales organization. It is expanding. And I would imagine things like legal and finance and marketing. I mean, our website was brochureware until about a year ago. So <laughs> no bells and whistles. And, you know, I mean, I'd sometimes look at these cryptocurrency type things and their websites and it's all pizzazz and I don't know. We're not there yet, but we'll get there. If we have this conversation about a year's time, I would say that the proportion of people that are not scientists or employed as scientists and who are involved in all of the areas that are necessary for an organization to become commercially successful 
across the world. I think that's what we're now looking at. And that's why we've hired a chief executive who comes from Intel and Micron and whose, you know, P&L was like some ungodly number. I think it was $14 billion. So, you know, he, he knows what big looks like. That's really, really interesting. I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating to have a conversation at this kind of point in the, in the industry. Certainly, we'll include some links to the book in in the show notes. I think we're all going to go away and pick that up and read through that. (laughs) We want to thank you for taking the time to come onto the show as well. Very much appreciated. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show.